Big Dumb Movie is a comedic podcast that often contains obscene language and outlandish commentary. Listener discretion is advised. Hello and welcome to Big Dumb Movie, where we discuss movies of the big dumb variety. I'm your host, Corey, and I'm joined with my good friend today, Steve. Hola. Hi, Steve. How's it going, man? Oh, I'm fine. I'm dandy. Yeah? Yeah. Steve. (laughs) What was your experience with the movie toys? Wow, my mother and her mother took me to see it in a movie theater. It was like a day out with mom and grandma. I was nine. I was nine when this movie came out. It was a fun day as a kid. I think I remember... (laughs) I really enjoyed seeing this movie as a kid, but I have to admit that I think part of the reason I like it is because, to my memory, I got to go to a restaurant that I loved right before we went into the theater to see it. It was this this place that looked like a submarine. It was a super cool restaurant. (laughs) And I don't, to be honest with you, I don't think my mom really liked it all that much, but my grandmother had found it and took myself and a bunch of my cousins there, and I really wanted to go, and there was a movie theater in the same shopping center, so we just went, which was fun. But but yeah, that was that was my memory. I really liked it. I think uh, I think my mother found it kind of strange but interesting, and I, th- I think my grandmother came away. My grandmother had, had studied art at one point. I think she came away very much liking the art of it, but not really liking the movie. I also similarly saw this with my grandma, actually. Well, not with her necessarily, but I talked about this on the podcast before. I used to stay with my grandma a lot as a kid. She had, I think, five VHSs over there for the kids. Right. You know, outside of her recorded soap operas, which every grandma had. (laughs) Um, One of the movies was Congo. I talked about that. Nice. A Goofy movie was another one. Uh, Another one was Indian in the Cupboard. Right. Awful movie. (laughs) And another one was Toys. So she got this because it had Robin Williams on the cover. It's called Toys. It's a 90s movie. The kids will love it, right? Absolutely. I didn't understand this fucking movie as a kid. I tried as a kid. I'm telling you, I watched this movie repeatedly. I wanted to get into this movie. I never quite did, but I think I said I liked it. Like, if you would have asked me back then, do you like toys? Yes, I love toys. It's awesome. Robin Williams. (laughs) Yeah, I have to admit, I didn't really understand a lot about it at nine. I knew that I really liked the way it it looked. My my mother made a point of taking me, starting as young as she'd get away with, to art museums, even even if she could only keep me in for, you know, 45 minutes at a time before I wanted to go elsewhere, just to, like, get me looking at paintings and stuff. And I really appreciated the aesthetic of it. It, it, A lot of it is adapted from – I've been talking about this in a minute, but – a lot of it's adapted from uh, artwork by Magritte, a uh, modernist painter named Magritte. The poster design is uh, taken from one of his paintings, and I thought it was neat looking. Yeah, you know? there's there's a couple interpretations of the poster. There's there's the one with Robin Williams with the hat with the blank space, and you can see the background mm-hmm. as if like his head is empty. Right. But there's another version where it's himself in the hat. Right. Yeah. So they they yeah, they have a couple versions of it. I think the VHS cover I had was the former. Right. It's very interesting. But one of the things I like to do on this podcast, Steve, is talk about movies that were in theaters at the same time as this. But I've I've flipped it on its head this time. <laughs> I've turned it into a game. And Steve, I expect you to get all of these right. It's kind of a trivia. Uh-oh. So I expect nothing less than perfection from you, sir. All right. <laughs> so I have a list of movies that were in theaters at the same time as toys, potentially, within a few weeks, right? So they're right. probably in the same theaters. I'm going to tell you the actor, and you tell me what the movie was. Now, keep in mind, this is 1992 winter time. Okay. The first one might be tough, but Steve, you got this. 
All right, Mel Gibson. 92 winter time Mel Gibson. In theaters at the same time as toys. As toys. Now that's an interesting one. Are these necessarily holiday themed films? Not all of them. Because I'm thinking it would, would have maybe been maybe the, sen- the second uh, Lethal Weapon movie. Nope. No? I'll give you another chance though. I'll give you a hint. Hmm. Captain America. Wait. Mel Gibson, Captain America, 92. I feel like this is going to be super obvious when I figure out what it is. I'm going to be feeling stupid for not picking it out. But, I mean, he... Oh, 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 uh, Forever Young? Damn. Yeah, he Forever Young. Off. Yeah, I had to dig for a minute to think where he... Yeah, he was, a, he was a military pilot in that one when they froze him. Right. Yeah. Yeah, from like 1940 or something. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> God, I remember that movie. Absolutely. That was a childhood favorite of mine. Yeah, I like that one. All right. Here's another actor. Michael Caine. Michael Caine, what was he doing in 92? This is past the point that he'd done that ridiculous Jaws sequel. I think that was the earlier mid-80s. What was Michael Caine doing in 92? I can also give you a hint. Yeah. This one is Christmas-themed. 92 Christmas-themed with Michael Caine in it. Oh, man. That's that's interesting. Um... Did he make an appearance in... No, Second Die Hard came out in 90. He wasn't in that anyway. Think more kids' movies. More kids' movies. More kids' movies. Bruce Willis was Santa in North, and that was a few years later. Ugh. Yeah. Or no, he was the Easter Bunny. Forget, never got scratched that. I was thinking the wrong anyway. Michael Caine, kids' movie from 92, holiday-themed. This is another one. I feel like it's good. I'm going to say, oh my God, how could I not have thought of that? But I, this one, I don't know. Pappy's yelling at his phone right now. It's the Muppet Christmas Carol. Oh, <laughs> man. I wasn't. And you know what's funny? I was just talking about the Muppets Take Manhattan with somebody yesterday. Well, yeah, I feel bad for not guessing that one. <laughs> That's all right. Time to redeem yourself. All right. Next actor, Chuck Norris. Chuck Norris. Did did sidekicks him out? Yeah, sidekicks. Boom. Right on yeah. the money. All <laughs> <laughs> right. All right. Here's a good one, man. Macaulay Culkin. You got this. That had to have been the first Home Alone. Second Home Alone. Oh, there it is. Yeah. Saved it. <laughs> right? All right. Last one I got. Gary Oldman. Gary Oldman. He was doing a lot more serious stuff in the early 90s than I think he's taken more recently. What was he doing in the early 90s? A bunch of stuff. This is a few years before... The Fifth Element. All right, here's your hint. Keanu Reeves. Gary Oldman and Keanu. Oh, oh, um. God, Babes in Toyland was around this time, but I don't think Oldman was in that. I think it may have been older. Um, it's not River's Edge. British uh, accents. <clears throat> oh, uh, they did. It was uh, Coppola's version of Dracula 92? Yeah. yeah. There you go. <laughs> You know, that would have been a beautiful production if it weren't for Keanu Reeves. <laughs> <laughs> Don't you just hate saying that? Yeah, I do, because he really is good in so many other things, but but not not a good choice in that part. There was a long time when I said he was a bad actor, and uh, I, I kind of regret that. He's not a bad actor. He just yeah. is kind of bad in some things. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's... I, I I agree with you for the most part. I don't want to I don't want to stick him in the bad actor camp because he's not a bad actor. He's not Daniel Day Lewis, but yeah, he he's if you put him in the right place, he he can do it pretty well. Yeah, 
you know. He's definitely found his uh, area these days. I mean, right. we talked about Keanu Reeves a lot on this podcast. Oh, yeah. Johnny Mnemonic, The Matrix, the <laughs> cyberpunk legend, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Steve, though, we're here to talk about Toys, a different 1992 movie. How the hell was this movie made? I know that Barry Levinson, who directed it, is also a screenwriter. He really started his career as a screenwriter. And during the late 70s, this was something he wrote early on. I don't know exactly when. I do know he wrote it with a woman named Valerie Curtin, who's someone he collaborated with on on several other other scripts. But he must have written the film sometime during the very late 70s or right at the beginning of the 80s because he'd intended for it to be his directorial debut. And his directorial, his actual directorial debut came out in 82, a full decade before this. And um, there was a woman, Sherry Lansing, who at one point was the head of production at 20th Century Fox. When she took over in 1980, this script already existed and she liked it so much she tried to get it produced in 1980 at Fox, and it didn't happen. Other, other than that, I don't really know whether there was any specific inspiration or, or significant development process for this film. Other than that, Levinson has got a very sort of pacifist viewpoint. I don't mean that in a judgmental way, but he, I think you know, a lot of this, you can see it in the story, really just stemmed from him wanting to do something artistic that also had a sort of pacifist undertone to it. They made this a very, very artistic film, and I, I don't know if it was his idea to, to have it look this way or if it came entirely from the people that they hired. Um, they got an Italian designer um, after after the film finally did go into production in the early 90s, this guy named uh, Ferdinando Scarfiotti. He, he designed background stuff a lot for theatrical productions and operas, but also some films. And he brought this very, very modernist art, sort of Dadaist artistic sense to the production himself, at least. Uh, the guy had studied architecture and um, had worked with, with some other big filmmakers, including Bernardo Bertolucci. Oddly enough, he's had a, he had a weird movie career. Um, he did some background design for American Gigolo, for a very strange movie called Cat People, and even for for uh, Brian De Palma's version of Scarface. This ended up being the last film he worked on before he passed, but they incorporated a lot into the design. Um, and again, I don't know who this came from, but they very clearly incorporated a lot into the design from, from uh, the painter, Rene Magritte. Um, one of his paintings, The Son of Man, was a big inspiration for the poster photo and et cetera, et cetera. But yeah, the development of this, I guess, just sort of came out of Levinson wanting to do something artsy and anti-war. Yeah. The impression I got was that it was uh, Barry Levinson's like passion project. Yeah, yeah. I mean, very much is what I've read as well. That like he he spent I mean over a decade scraping to get this finally produced, and that he had wanted it to be the film he started his directorial career with. And then, as far as I know, once Williams was attached, it kind of also became his passion project as well. So it was like their joint like this is going to be our shit right here, right? Right. Yeah, I don't, you know, I, that could very well be the case. I've I've read and heard very, very little <clears throat> over the years about William's involvement in the film. The, the two things I do recall learning were that he, he did this right around the same time Aladdin was coming out. And because they knew that this was going to be a smaller production, they didn't want to completely lose the fact that Robin Williams was in it to the marketing for, for Disney, for, for Aladdin. 
So Williams went to Disney and basically penned what was supposed to be an agreement with them saying that they would limit the amount they used his character or his voice or his name in their advertising. And Disney made the agreement with him and then basically turned around later on. Somebody was like, why'd you do this? Fuck that. Now we're, we're going to play up the fact that he's in it to death. And that's what they did. And it caused a huge fallout for a while between he and Disney. But I think he must have enjoyed himself because the one other thing I do know is that um, Levinson would frequently just leave one of their cameras rolling so that if uh, Williams decided to go off on set on a rant or a, in a bit or something, they'd get, they'd get it on camera just in case they wanted to use it in the movie, which is kind of crazy to think about. If, if you know anything about the way they make movies on film, like a film camera, it holds a thousand feet of film at a time, which sounds like a ton. But a thousand feet of film is only about 11 minutes worth and it, 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 it's expensive. So to keep a film camera running basically all the time that he's on set just to get just in case he does something is a really expensive proposition. Imagine all the footage they have. Right. But to expand on the Disney thing, there was a lot of drama with that. It's kind of famous now at this point, the yeah. Aladdin thing, because it was one of the first movies that had a big celebrity voice that was marketed as having a big celebrity voice. Yeah. Now it's very common. Oh, yeah. But the same year Fern Gully came out, and he was also in that. Oh, yeah, I forgot he was in that. Yeah, and it came out earlier in the year, and he signed up for Fern Gully before Aladdin because he was, he really supported the ideas behind Fern Gully, right. which is like his big reason for it. But there was definitely some Disney drama because they were kind of pissed at him that he didn't back out of Fern Gully. Because he was in their animated movie, too. And they just wanted, you know. Yeah. Uh, it was a Katzenberg project. So uh, they backed out on their deal that they made with him to have him only in 25% of the marketing or his character. Right. Um, they, he didn't want it to overshadow Toys. It definitely did. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Aladdin was a smash hit. Toys was not a smash hit. No. No, and it didn't get particularly good reviews either. I mean, I'm convinced this is one of those movies, not to the same degree, but I'm convinced it's one of those movies that kind of like Blade Runner got shat on when it came out. In retrospect, as time goes on, I think people will come to appreciate at least more about the production itself. I think so. The production, definitely. Yeah. This was a $50 million budget. Yeah. It made a little bit less than half that. Yeah. Pretty sad. <laughs> yeah, it, was, it is pretty sad. I mean, especially for a Robin Williams movie in the early 90s at the same time that other films he was in were smashing it. Right. And the director, Barry Levinson, he was nominated for a Razzie for Worst Director. <laughs> he didn't win uh, or lose. I don't know like yeah. what the terminology there is. But uh, the person that got the Razzie is David Seltzer for a movie called Shining Through. Don't know it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, let's get into toys itself. Steve, this movie opens with a Christmas play that goes yeah. on for, I think, six hours. <laughs> right? <laughs> I, I, yeah, I, I find this scene very neat, but yeah, I think they, they drug it out a bit. It, it, it starts off with the cameras panning along this really elaborate, I think quite beautiful sort of semi-miniature scale set of part of Manhattan and Central Park. And then all of a sudden, you start to realize everything in it is miniature, and then you see little feet come through, and it turns out that it's it's uh, girls, little girls in ballet costume, or ballet dress, and that as it expands, you see more and more of this sort of fake cityscape that they're in, but then also you realize that they're performing something 
very much like an opera. Um, the old, the, the opening, uh, the opening music right at first, like the first few seconds, is from a Tchaikovsky symphony. But then they they go off. I don't know if the rest of the music in this is from maybe it's from an opera I'm not familiar with or something or another musical. But yeah, and then it it, it basically turns out that it's a holiday play. It's it's one of those weird things about the movie is like they don't really tell you why they're hosting a holiday play or ballet inside a scale model of New York in a toy factory and there's an audience there of, of mothers and their children and toward the end of the the music there's this kind of like moment where Santa flies in on a plane and starts dropping presents and all the kids rush the stage and they're all, why like, are you flying a plane right <laughs> you know it's it, it, I mean it's kind of clear from an artistic standpoint the point here is like we're setting a tone and that this movie is all about like if you listen to the lyrics of the woman singing like this it's about hope and 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 giving and friendship and here are all the children of the world and we're all going to have this nice time and be good and that's that's the feeling we want you to to carry with you through this story is that this is about peace and togetherness and love and joy and it's all right fine I get it but yeah it's it's kind of an awkward I mean you get 1992 is time stamped on pretty much every part of this film and you get it right from that opening <laughs> scene like this is this is a 92 way to do this yeah I feel like in school around this time the teachers would put on like these weird like movie pl- like yes. the, like the nutcracker and stuff like right. uh, that stuff was i don't know i i saw a lot of it around this time yeah absolutely stuff I, like you see in the opening of this movie and i think that that's kind of what it's playing on is almost like an elaborate elementary school holiday player production of the nutcracker and yeah but uh, it's it's hard for a kid to get into early on i was like checked out when I first saw this movie with based on this intro because it was not like fun it's not like you know it's not a kid thing to enjoy on a movie necessarily because it is a little bit like I don't know corny it's, it's funny like I I'm, I'm halfway there with you it, for me at nine I actually loved a large part of this even though even as a kid I was never fond never particularly fond of musicals I was very picky there were some that I was into and others that I was like most of the others not so much but I, I the whole the whole set the Manhattan I found very surreal and and kind of strange and the production of it was weird enough that I like but I do I do think you're right it was corny and that part I was like eh it got to a point where I would just fast forward the intro song you know like, <laughs> it was the uh, the cheer up Charlie moment of the movie for me <laughs> right I mean there's other parallels with Willy Wonka I think the toy factory itself is like a Wonka-esque building, is it not? Yeah, no, this this could, in a sense, be like Willie's first cousin, the toy maker. Yeah. You know, one of them does candy and one of them does toys. <laughs> you know, like... But, it, again, very, very interesting to see where, like, you know, Willy Wonka was all just, like, whim and whimsy, which is fantastic. But this is, like... I don't even know how, how do you put this. Like, it's... It, if, you, if you take a child's sense of whim and whimsy and you combine it with the mind of somebody who's got a like a PhD in modernist art like that's how you end up with this <laughs> <laughs> yes so we talked about there's there's a toy factory the plot of this movie is pretty simple uh, a guy that runs this toy factory you can tell he's like a, a big man child he's got one of those twirly hats with the little propeller like you know spanky style from little rascals <laughs> pacemaker cap <laughs> his pacemaker cap the toy factory is this very elaborate like trippy fucking place and 
basically he's on his deathbed and he's gonna give the factory to his brother who is very different from him he's a military guy he's a general he always wears a military outfit at all times like his you know general gear it's it's dumbledore by the way it's michael gambin he's the there's two dumbledores right there's yeah. a nice dumbledore and then there's a mean dumbledore he's the mean dumbledore yeah it was richard harris in the first film and then harris passed away so gambon got the part <laughs> did you put your name in the goblet of fire I mean, and like, not that I'm against it. The Harry Potter movies are a lot of fun, but um, Gambon's career is, is like, I think at least five decades long. He's been in a lot of really important movies and Academy Award winning stuff. He He's worked with Peter Greenaway, who's one of the like most significant sort of artsy European directors of the last 40 years. And, you know, but if you ask anybody under 35, especially like, well, do you know who Michael Gambon is? If the answer is yes, it's because Dumbledore. You know, I, pretty much. Yeah, I, I think it's kind of like Alec Guinness ending up being known as Obi Wan. Right. Know? <laughs> <laughs> There's a Star Wars reference. Thank you. But uh, the plan is for him to take over Zevo Toys, which is the name of the company. Their last name is Zevo. Now, the guy that owns the toy factory, the guy that passes away, he also has two kids who are grown. There's Leslie, who's played by Robin Williams. That's our lead. And then there's Alsatia, played by Joan Cusack. And they're they're both kind of quirky. I mean, Robin Williams is Robin Williams, right? So that just mm-hmm. says it all. You behave like a buffoon. Buffoon? Ooh, very interesting word. I wonder what the derivation of that is. I love entomology of words. Maybe it's a combination of balloon and buffalo. <laughs> or maybe uh, buffer and fool. <laughs> or maybe it's from the Latin word, buffamatus, he who carries the pickle. He's always pulling voices and doing pranks. He's in charge of their novelty department. So he's always like busting out like little fart machines and like weird jackets that have like gags associated to them. Like the one that's always smoking. It's a smoking jacket. Like that's the joke, but it is literally <laughs> smoking everywhere he goes. Right. Like it fills a whole room with smoke. Al- Alsatia's weird herself. She's kind of hard to describe angels somewhere are trumpeting this man's tin horns tin horns i like that tin horns are fun yeah yeah i mean she definitely seems like sort of someone that's that's definitely different right yeah Yeah, there's something going on with her which we find out later which is not really that it's just well i guess we can say it she's a fucking robot Right? Like, literally. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you're not supposed to know that until right at the end of the movie. But, yeah. And uh, Rob Botin, Botin, who did RoboCop suit for at least both of the first two films, also did all of the robot effects for her. Oh, okay. So, like, the, the headless part and the gears. and We'll talk about it when we get it. But, yeah. We get to see a good amount of the toy factory because it's being shown to... The general guy, and his name is Leland, so I should probably call him that. Michael Gambon is Leland. <laughs> How would you describe the Toy Factory, Steve? The Toy Factory is very much like, uh, well, again, you know, Magritte was, Magritte's art was a huge inspiration here, along with other people's, but Magritte was Belgian, and a lot of his paintings were, were I think, from the 30s, if not earlier, and... Uh, it looks very much like that. It, it's a very European kind of early post-Cold War type architecture. Artistic while being sort of simple. Somewhere somewhere in between Bauhaus and, and modernist artistic architecture. And it's a little drab in some areas, but also made to be very fun in others. The, the assembly lines are all kind of these 
overcomplicated roller coasters and the machines are all big. There's, there's splashes of color and funny characters in places. There are toys sort of milling around in the factory and everyone's kind of got this this I'm a worker attitude. It's, it's kind of strange. It's almost... I mean, Steve, they're happy workers. They are right? happy workers. <laughs> they tell us that right? through song. And it's but that that's it's one of the things I think is interesting about this. Is that whole sequence is this very strange juxtaposition because in some ways it's very reminiscent of like Cold War Soviet USSR propaganda where like everyone wears the same gray uniform. Everyone comes into the same factory. You all do the same kind of work. You're all good happy workers. And but the tone of the song they're listening to is very happy. We're all, and it's really this song is called "Happy Workers," and they're dancing and they're they're playing, and there are all these toys milling around, and there's this weird air of we don't actually take things here seriously. So it's this strange juxtaposition of like almost propagandist elements juxtaposed against this like bright and happy. Everyone loves it. There's even a line in the song. I think it's, it's a perfect job, you know. <laughs> it's like it's really not though. You probably get paid minimum wage to spend all day standing in an assembly line. <laughs> but they dance around. But they dance around, so it's fine. It's great. We talked about the way this movie looks. It has some of the the best like set design it and does. props of any movie we've done a podcast on. It's a beautiful film. It really is. And and when we first get introduced early in the film to um, uh, the house that that. Leslie and Alsatia live in, there's a scene where their car is pulling up in front and it, it's like it's like a picture book opening. Like this two-piece thing opens like a book and, or a pop-up book, I mean, and like the house sort of pops out from the pages. That shot, I hadn't watched this movie in probably two or three years when I sat down on Friday to rewatch it for this. That, that scene always strikes me. I thought that was incredible. Like literally verbally, I was like, that's so cool. The moment I saw it, like, I totally forgot about how cool that was. The whole thing looks so amazing. The surrealism element of this movie was perfect. That is one of the coolest like effects in the movie in terms of like this weird Wonka-esque vibe, the right. house that folds out and they that's where they live. Right. And it's... It's strange because it's in a field with just a blue sky and you're never really sure if that's indoors or not. Yeah. I think they shot a lot of this like in the Pacific Northwest, but I've also heard rumors that they set up stuff in the field at Pierce College down in Woodland Hills. Yeah, I've heard that too. But um, uh, yeah, it's very – it's the whole environment again. It's very surrealistic, very blue sky, very green grass. It's almost like the – for anyone who remembers, one of the default background images in, I think, Windows XP yeah. looks almost exactly like that. You know, like, <laughs> They live in Windows XP. They live in Windows XP land, you know? <laughs> but yeah, it's just like, it, it's, it's like real, but not real. It's almost like this fantasy land. Yeah, very strange. And Leland, the general, he's, he's not sure if he really wants to take this on because he's a military guy and this is all like goofball bullshit to him yeah so you know he's he's kind of on the fence the the company is now in his name but he doesn't know if he actually wants to pursue running it um he goes to visit his dad at some point and his dad is like this old general it's the grandpa from problem child i'm pretty sure yeah yeah (laughs) and he you can't really hear him he's like it seems like maybe he's on his deathbed or he's just an old man that's just in bed all the time, like He's Grandpa like Joe this style. Riddled, senile, absolutely ancient old military man, <laughs> four star general that clearly just spent his whole functional adult life in the military and is now like so defunct he can't do anything except lay in bed and mumble. He's like the 
old fucker from Texas Chainsaw. Like, <laughs> 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 Or in the Jersey City or that kind of porn. And you know what? I'm not. Uh, and his, his nurse, Nurse Debbie, is played by an actress. I think her real first name might be Debbie. It's something Mazar. Her last name is Mazar. I remember that. But yeah, she, she frequently in the late 80s and early 90s played the kind of sexy vixen who was out to uh, mess with someone. She's like Tracy Lords-esque in a way. Yeah, she sort of is. Sort of is. Without you know. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. Tracy Lords lied about her age earlier in her, in her career and did a bunch of porn before she was technically legal. And there's a lot of perverts out there who prize the stuff she did before she was legal, which is technically illegal to have. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. I didn't know she had any controversy at all. Right. <laughs> Uh, the actress, though, Mazar, she was in another big dumb movie. She was Spice in Batman Forever. Remember yeah. that, Jim? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's right. She was Spice. She was the, with uh, Two-Face and... Uh, Drew Barrymore was Sugar and she sugar, was Spice. Right. Mazar had a great comic book character face. They should have found a lead for her, like a real lead for her in a comic book movie. She really did look like a like a come-to-life drawing of a... a like a noir character from a comic. Yeah, she's got a really strong look. She does. Striking. Yeah, she's know? very pretty, I think. But yeah, 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 absolutely. She's definitely fucking Leland. Right? <laughs> <laughs> absolutely she is, and that becomes an issue later. <laughs> yeah, it does. One of the small things in that scene is, because the general seems very strong, you know? Yeah. And he's British, and we find out that he was, he's actually not British, he's American. He's in the American military, but he was raised in England, so like he has a British accent. So he complains that he wasn't taken seriously. He never became a four-star general. He's only a three-star general right. because of that, because of his stupid accent. He's he's a big fucking baby when he's around his dad. He whines a lot, right? Right, absolutely. We see, like, his, that's kind of his real side. That's what the impression we get. Oh, I know, I know. You're a four-star general. I know. You have four stars to my three. Every time I come here, you turn that cursed light on to remind me, to humiliate me. I could have had four stars, Daddy, if it wasn't for this cursed British accent of mine. You would have to be stationed in England during my formative years. It's your fault. I've never been taken for a real American. The conversation he has at the beginning with his brother before the brother dies, you, you get the impression the father was very domineering and expected both of them to have military careers, but that only Leland followed in his footsteps. Yeah. So... And he says in Vietnam, one of his men tried to frag me. Yeah. And the dad's like, you can't really make it out, but I had subtitles on. And he says, big cock? <laughs> Question mark? Right. And he goes, no, frag Angry. me. Right. <laughs> That's subtle. That's probably why this movie has a PG-13 rating. Yeah, right? Yeah, absolutely. Otherwise, I mean, I guess sort of deals with the issue of, issue of war a little bit. But per what we were talking about a minute ago, kids don't really even get it. Yeah. His real interest in taking over the company kind of peaks when he's in a, a meeting with like the executives of Zevo Toys. And one of them says that like, oh, they had to delay a toys release because the plans were leaked to a competitor. Yeah. And that like strikes his interest. Like that's something he can get his mind around. Latch right? on though. Yeah. He suddenly decides that rather than even worrying about the toy part of the business, he'd rather be involved in investigating corporate espionage. Right. Which then later evolves into him deciding he does sort of want to make toys, but they end up not really being toys. So what Leland does is he wants to crack down on security and he needs someone to be in charge of that. He brings in his son, LL Cool J. LL Cool J. Who's Patrick. 
Yes. I never really questioned it, but I guess his wife was black, right? Well, they... It's funny, like, they, they do infer later on that he's Leland's adopted son. Leland does explicitly say at one point that LL Cool J's mother died of appendicitis. At the, in that moment, he's lying, but we don't know that at first. And there's a sort of inference that after she died, Leland took over, took LL Cool J's character as his son, which doesn't really, I mean, I guess it's like, where was his, fa- his actual father, but whatever. And then it comes to light later in the movie that his mother really died on a sort of suicide mission that Leland sent her on, and that out of guilt, he adopted LL Cool J's character. I see. I, I, I had trouble kind of picking that up. Even on this most recent rewatch, I was like, wait, what happened exactly? Right. And that's that we'll get to when we get there, but that's what sets off LL Cool J's character and makes him flip sides and help Leslie and Alsatia. Right. Learning that he's like, I mean, on the one hand, I feel like he did... He clearly raised you pretty well. Like you're healthy, you're committed, you have a career in the military, you're very good at your job. But I can understand being being angry that you were lied to about how your mother died. So he is very good at his job. He is hardcore military. Yeah, he and really he's is. like super into this covert shit, which plays really well in the movie because it's like always used in the form of a gag. Right. He will suddenly appear out of nowhere in full camouflage, <laughs> which it's not possible, the camouflage outfits he has. Like right. at one point he's like He's actually inside of the couch. Like, he's part of the couch cushions, and his whole outfit is the pattern of the couch. Yes. And there's a cou- there's a, a cushion sewn to his back. Like, there's no way that, like, that would have taken so long to prepare. Right. Like, it's so unrealistic. Well, and how would he have known what the pattern on their couch was? Right. Like, they, it's his they, first time meeting them. Yeah. Well, well in a long time. Yeah, in a long, yeah. They do say that he was there once as a kid, but it was once as a child years before. There's no way he'd remember. Like, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> It's pretty funny, though, that they just see him pop out of nowhere. Like. <laughs> no, it is. It's one of my favorite, favorite bits about that character. LL Cool J is a, is a pretty good actor. I think so, too. Yeah. You know, he's been in a handful of movies. In fact, this is the first film that Jamie Foxx ever appeared in. Right. Jamie Foxx is one of his henchmen. He's one of the, uh, Leslie's, or hen- not Leslie's, one of Leland's henchmen. And he and uh, LL Cool J appeared together again years later in Any Given Sunday. Oh, okay. Yeah. In fact, Arthur, I can never remember if it's pronounced Mallet or Malay, but the guy who plays Owens, Owens is the kind of the second in control of the factory from a functional perspective. He's originally the second in command under Leslie's father and then eventually takes on that same role under Leland. That that actor, uh, Arthur Malay, Mallet, Mallet, was Toodles in Hook. Right. The one who lost his marble. So yeah, he and, he and, uh, Rob Williams appeared twice together over a pretty short period of time. Exactly, yeah. yeah. I, was thinking, I, I always want to call him Smee, but he's not Smee. No. He's Toodles. Yeah, it's Bob Hoskins with Smee. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> LL Cool J is cracking down on security at the factory. Like, it's things are changing for the worse is the way they make it appear because they put up unnecessary, like, chain-link fences with barbed wire at the entrance. They want to, like, crack down on these security leaks which are basically just mentioned once but it really leads to a lot of like strict security enforcement from LL Cool J and his goons they all wear these like very sharp striking military uniforms of red and black that look like Gestapo in a way yeah it's very funny because the way they're laid out we touched on this the last part I did with you we were talking about Robocop 2 um, which as the time at the time of this recording may not be posted yet but Toward the end, the OCP guys are starting to wear what increasingly look more and more like SS uniforms, and they're flying these flags that look increasingly more and more like Nazi flags, and there was a lot of aesthetic overlap with what the guys were wearing 
in this film. I mean, obviously, the, the racial undertone I don't think is meant to be there, especially considering LL Cool J is an African-American man. But, like, right. I, I think similar in the sense that, like, there's this control element coming in and, and things are being tightened down. And I, I, I think the ultimate point there is meant to be that, that discussion on, like, how much... How much how much freedom and 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 ability to do as you please you know is it worth giving up just to feel like you've closed the door on some other issue like is it worth doing all this just to stop some corporate espionage from happening? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we said Jamie Fox is in there. You said this was his first movie. I, I just quickly, I really like Jamie Fox as an actor. He's great. Yeah, yeah. And I don't I don't remember really even noticing him in the movie when I was a kid. But I I he'd been on In Loving Color for a while at that point. I I liked him. Yeah. I just can't wait for him to be Electro again, you know? Um, no comment. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to rope you into that discussion? No, well, we don't want to talk about that. I, I don't want to say anything not nice about Jamie Foxx. <laughs> like, that that part was horrible, and the makeup is stupid, and the effect didn't work, and it was an awful choice. Anyway. You don't like him wearing his glasses crooked? Like, <laughs> fumbling with blueprints? Like, dropping them all over? I need my blueprints, yeah. Like, I... I, I of all the characters, like I, mean, I guess it was slightly less stupid than Paul Giamatti's Rhino. Having to double down on the two of them in a single movie was really difficult uh, <laughs> to sit through. But uh, I like how they pulled the Green Goblin out of their ass. Like, <laughs> right? I mean, God, like if they're gonna, I, the multiverse idea in itself is not terrible, but this is such a dumb way of putting it. Like if they're if they're gonna pull a character, why not Doc Ock? He was easily the best of the villains from any of those Spider-Man movies. I'm not saying he was perfect, but my opinion, he's the one that came off the best on screen. Yeah. And at least Alfred Molina's a good actor. But I don't know. Anyway. <laughs> Here we go. Yeah. Done. <laughs> Alsatia's a trip, isn't she? I mean, she she wears, like, these plastic wigs. Yeah, she insists on dressing like a life-size doll. So, like, the kind of... Like interchangeable plastic hair pieces and and magnetized pin-on clothing that little girls might have put on dolls at one point. Like she wears life-size versions of them. I, I, I the only reason I really have any consciousness of this is because I recall asking my mom. My mom was born in '51, and I remember my mother telling me like, you know, those are the kinds of dolls she'd played with in like 1956, 1957. You know, those right. kinds of dolls didn't really even exist anymore in the early 90s when I was a little kid. That's the whole point of the toys in this place, though, that uh, was noteworthy to me. Yeah. Because they're all old-timey toys. They're all 50s and 60s toys, right? Yeah, and in fact, that's the whole point, really. And and in, toward the end, there's a part where William Leslie is doing a sort of patent bit where he's addressing the toys that they're going to use to fight with. And yeah. He, you know, he's talking about how some of you have, have never been big sellers, but we... We keep you... I'm talking to you, Alien Al. Yeah, okay. Mm-hmm. Well, by the way, Alien Al looks suspiciously a lot like Jar Jar Banks. <laughs> like, but, uh, but yeah. Oh, shit. He does. I swear, Lucas just ripped that idea right out of toys. But, uh, um, but yeah. Yeah, you know, but I, I think you're right about that. It's a very... They're kind of grounded in the old way of doing things, but it's not one of these... It's not one of these, like, you're... you're conservative bigot types who just want you know the old world it's like no we want the wholesome part we can get we can do without the rest of it but like we're just here to preserve like the way the toys used to be and you know childhood is a certain type of thing and i can appreciate that and that's one of the things that leland wants to change yeah he wants to bring in war toys which is uh not something this company has ever done or ever wanted to do 
And uh, that that's kind of where things start rolling from here. Is like he says, okay, we're changing this up. These old toys are not working. We need something that modern kids of the '90s want. Right. War toys. Yeah, and at one point, he has some of the people working at the factory draw up some prototype specs and and schematics for him, and he he doesn't like what they've shown him. And he's right; what they've shown him isn't great. So he goes with the LL Cool J character's name. I've forgotten now. Patrick. Patrick. Thank you. He goes with Patrick to to uh, a toy store just to see what other companies are making, and what they end up looking at are GI Joe toys. One of those I had the yeah. tank one. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I did too. That was an awesome toy. Yeah, but uh, I, I loved GI Joes. Yeah, that no, that was that was sick. But that's that was pretty fun. And well, they, they take a trip. I mean, it's not just a toy store. They they take a trip right into my nostalgia, man. Yeah, they go to an old style arcade. Yes, that's another one. I love the style of arcade they're in because it's like the dark neon lit arcade. You yeah. remember those, man? Oh God, yes, <laughs> absolutely, I do. I spent countless, countless, countless hours in those. I think if if my parents had ever added up the amount of money that went into arcade machines when I was growing up, they would have probably been kind of upset. <laughs> like, absolutely, and like I fondly remember a bunch that are sadly just no longer around, but. Uh, Fortunately, there's a, there's there are some people in the LA area flying flying the torch for that kind of arcade, but you gotta you gotta know where to find them. But they're not even even the ones I've been to that are that still exist aren't quite like this. Yeah, because this is one where it's cabinets just in a row. Yeah, just cabinets like one inch from each other. Now you see them; they're kind of like spread out. Like, what could we find? Right. But ne- dude, man, I love this shit. Just tons of machines. I. Well, it's, I think it's not going to be very interesting to our viewers, but uh, Royce's, whenever Royce's reopens, there are, their old space was like that. They're reopening a new one. I don't know if the new one's going to be the same. But Let's hit it, man. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I'm into it. Yeah, we should do it. But I, I really like that moment of the movie. One of my favorite moments, mostly because of the, just the 90s nostalgia of it. Plus, like, arcades even were dying out. I think in the late '90s, so like seeing them in the yeah. early '90s is cool. Yeah, it really was. No, that's true. That was still sort of part of the arcade peak, and then late '90s, it was st- starting to crash. By the early 2000s, a lot of them were, were gone already. Yeah. Why don't you tell us about Gwen? She's introduced somewhere around this point in the movie. Gwen's played by um, uh, Robin Wright. Previously, I think married to Sean Penn. Robin Wright works in the. Well, in the duplication department, it looks like her job is basically just photocopying stuff. Right. She's the copy person. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, there, Leland has got Patrick investigating this corporate espionage thing. And Patrick wants to know how the schematics for this toy got out of the factory in the first place. So fairly logically, he decides he wants to talk to the people in charge of of printing and the copy machines at the facility because this is an era really – I guess email technically existed, but your average person was not using it. Um, yeah. And and the internet was not widespread. Most anything that you were going to to you know steal would have been stolen through photographs or photocopies or something like that. And um, he goes to talk to her to find out if anyone other than her uses the copy machine and is it possible that someone used it while you weren't around and blah blah blah. But he ends up he ends up going really nuts with it and just divulging into nonsense like he starts demanding to know like how the photocopier physically works there's any duplicating going around here when you're not present uh huh yeah maybe do you duplicate alone 
I think that's kind of a personal question. I don't you, really you're know. laughing, Miss Tyler. Are you taking my duplication investigation seriously? Or are you disrespecting my duplication investigation? No, no, I'm not I'm not disrespecting. I'm just saying that there's no real way I can check, you know, because I leave at a certain time. And I, I'm not... Duplicating is taking place. And when duplicating takes place, that means that there's more than one. It may be two or three, Miss Tyler. Two, three, or four. I do... <laughs> Y'all are joking. No, Are y'all kidding with me? I'm talking just... about duping. Duping. Okay. Duplication. By the time he gets through with his rant, he's got his head and her head stuffed into the copier taking pictures of it and of their faces. And it's like, what are you what are you doing right now? How is this at all relevant to your, your job? Just all you needed to ask her was whether or not anyone else may have photocopied stuff without her knowledge. <laughs> but uh, um, Robin Williams kind of breaks it up though, right? Yeah, he eventually comes in is like, why are you doing this? What's going on? And rescues her from the copier. He has some pretty funny gags with the photocopies. The Michael Jackson before and after was like <laughs> yeah. one of my favorite jokes of the whole movie. Arts and crafts. This is fabulous. Look at that face. Come on, is that a great face or what? That's Michael Jackson before and after. <laughs> Never had surgery. Never, ever. You have a look like a deer in front of a Peterbilt, kind of. <laughs> Hit the brakes, Al. Hit the brakes. Yeah, I, I really like it. I mean, that's the kind of bit he usually did, too. But I have a feeling, I think this is one of those movies that, like, most people aren't super conscious of at this point. But I also have the feeling that if this movie suddenly became popular again, that scene would get torn to fucking shreds. I think people would hate it. I think people would say it was racist. I think people would say that, that like... Michael Jackson was mentally ill and this is picking on mental illness. It's ableist and blah, blah, blah. Like, I don't, I don't think that scene would fly in 2020. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Someone that listens to this podcast, you got to watch it and let us know. Right. <laughs> yeah. Did, did any of you find that offensive? I thought it was funny. <laughs> she, Gwen, uh, Robin Wright, she kind of develops like a romantic relationship with Leslie. Like yeah. It kind of starts building throughout the movie. Like they have interactions here and there. They spend a lot of time together. And it's interesting how much of it he clearly instigates. Not that it comes off. None of it comes off as bad or creepy or harassy or anything like that. But they. This is this is one of my few actual nitpicks with the movie that I think the Leslie character is a little inconsistent in this regard because the whole time otherwise he's made out to be this man child like like a six year old in a grown man's body and it's very funny. But it's to the point that, like, his father didn't want to leave him in charge. There's a moment early on where Leslie and Alsatia are having a conversation about the fact that their Uncle Leland's going to be the one taking over the factory. And Leslie effectively says, Dad was right not to leave me in control. He, he Leslie actually says he knew better than to do that. Like, mm-hmm. Leslie even acknowledges he wouldn't have been the right person. But then when he gets interested in Gwen, he is way more than her. Again, not in a bad way, but way more than her. He's the one instigating to try to build a relationship between the two of them. Want a ride? No. Thank you. Just learning? Yeah. Yeah. A little long in the tooth for training wheels. You drive all the way out here just to insult me? Oh, au contraire, ma chère. This is my way home. No, it is. Come on, let me give you a lift and I'll teach you how to ride that bike. Why? I just want to get laid. <laughs> no. Oh, my daddy 
would just have a field day with you. <laughs> I bet I'd be swinging from some tree. <laughs> and somehow it didn't bother me when I was a kid, but as an adult, I find that a little inconsistent. I don't believe that Leslie would have been the one to instigate. And you find out at some point, uh, basically because her character admits to it, that Leslie's father was the person that hired her, and he partly hired her hoping that she'd catch Leslie's interest. <laughs> Your daddy was right. What? <laughs> told me I'd like you. You met my dad? He hired me. My father hired you? Mm-hmm. The day uh, before he passed away. Handpicked. I don't know why. Maybe I do know why. <laughs> but yeah, anyway. Yeah, that is a kind of a strange thing, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. I think they could have easily gotten around that by just... Again, without making it creepy or uncomfortable or harass you, just rewriting it slightly so that she was the one to instigate a little more first, mm-hmm. you know, and bring him around. But in terms of the plot around this time, Leland has like a kind of revelation. He decides that, like, not only are they going to pursue war toys, but he wants to push the envelope with that. Basically, he invents drones. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it, it's interesting. Like, the idea of the drone predates this movie, but what he, they came up with for this movie is very similar to technology that, that actually did come out just a few years later. And, yeah, he, he realizes that, like, warfare is going to change and that the military is going to need an increasing number of, of things that can be remotely controlled and uh, that the first company to really get in on that that idea big is, is probably going to do be able to do huge business with the military. And Leland, I think, figures that because he and Patrick know high-ranking military personnel in Washington, D.C., that it would be really easy for them, excuse me, to come up with the prototypes and then sort of just get them sold to the military. Obviously, his character is a little bit of a monster, and ultimately the idea he has is not a good one. But I, it, I think it's very interesting the way he... They, they wrote this little speech for him where he's trying to convince Patrick of this idea. And they really gave it a lot of thought. They made it a serious speech in a way. It wasn't just ridiculous character being ridiculous. You can really understand why the argument from his side makes sense to some people. Because there's, there's a moment where he's talking about how, like, nationally speaking, we can't really afford not to have a military. But it's also really difficult to justify what it costs to maintain our military when you also have things like people starving and not getting medical care. So if you could find a way to keep the military but significantly reduce what it costs to do that, it's actually kind of the perfect solution. Right. Because you've now got more money to spend on social issues while not having to give up your military. And in a sense, he's not wrong. So that's part of it. Right. Yeah. It's it'll be cheaper and easier to have these remotely controlled drones right. or little I'm, planes that they can use for actual military operations. Right. But then it gets kind of evil from there, like really evil. You ever wonder why an airplane has to be a certain size? Because somebody has to get inside it, right? Right. What happens if you don't need a pilot? What happens if you just have remote control planes that carry deadly weapons? You saw it back there at the store. There were toy tanks, toy planes. Can you imagine what it'd be like if we perfected a toy-sized plane that had deadly fighting capabilities? 
little remote control plane. Yes! You saw those kids back there at the arcade. Those kids have better hand-eye coordination than any pilot you'll ever see. Little children can fly remote control planes. The other side of it is that he wants kids to do it and then yeah. just tell them it's a video game. Right. I mean, and that's like it, that's that's the part where it's really like, oh, OK, well, this is kind of monstrous. You can't do it like this. Well, it doesn't work. Like, that's not a good idea. That part no. of it. No, it really does. I mean, I think his logic is the kids grew up, you know, playing video games, the hand-eye coordination. But yeah, you can't have children unwittingly, you know, piloting military craft from 10,000 miles away while they bomb stuff. <laughs> you ever watch kids play GTA? Like, all they want to do is get out of the car and solicit hookers and beat people up and crash their car. Like, if they thought they were playing a video game, they'd start crashing missiles into shopping malls and shit. Right. You know, like, <laughs> it would be out of control, exactly. Right. So to uh, to expand his operation in the toy company, which is he's keeping secret, he needs more space. We get like the more space montage, you know, where he's like, oh, I need more room. So he gets a lot of the faci- facility dedicated to him. Yeah, there's kind of a montage there where he just increasingly is taking over larger and larger chunks of the factory. And it sort of culminates with a scene where Robin Williams is in a development meeting with Alsatia and some of the other executives or development people at the company. One of whom, by the way, she makes multiple appearances is Yardley Smith, also known as Lisa Simpson. But uh, they're in, I, I, actually one of my favorite scenes in the movie because you don't know what's going to happen at first. It just starts with them having this meeting together in this kind of like lab space. And they're looking at fake vomit. And Robin Williams refers to what they're looking at as very innovative vomit. Yeah. Which is one of my favorite lines in any movie ever. And then they have this whole discussion about, like, what types of food should be in the vomit. Like, they need you need to add vegetables to this one because it makes it look more balanced and gives it more color. And then one of the guys who's w- working there with them is, is, an, is an Asian man starts to say that he thinks that the vomit is too um, Eurocentric. Right. And there needs to be vomit that better represents Asian people. <laughs> That's but good I, shit. And I can't remember ex- – exactly it is. I can't remember exactly what his lines are, but his bit in that scene is one of my favorite parts – He's so good. The lines are fantastic. You know what? In order to be competitive in the world market, maybe we need more of an international nausea. You know, something... Yes, can we cater to Asian people, please? That would make me very happy. I mean, this vomit is very Anglo, very ethnocentric. This is obviously the vomit of the white man. It's impressive. Well, we can have something like the teriyaki toss. That that would be fun. That's a Bavarian blow. That's very interesting, but it's too much. I mean, there's a lot going on here. You know, it titillates me, and and to me, that's the wrong reaction. Yeah, this is almost like Braille. It appeals to a male mark. But then slowly, the walls start closing in on them, and it's this very, like, it made me think of Tetris at first, because the walls start... Like like Tetris shaping. I don't know how else to phrase that. They start like the walls start moving, but not as solid pieces. You get these like like little Tetris shaped pieces that start coming out yeah, of the like walls. Yeah, like an L shape comes in first. Yeah, and, and then, then another like, slot comes to fill it. Yeah, and then stair or stair shape and blah blah blah. And, it, and they they start acknowledging what's happening. And Ron Williams is like, "We're being attacked by a crossword puzzle," which I thought was very funny. That's a good line. <laughs> But, uh, it gets to the point where they have to stand on the table because yeah. the room is that small. And then the table becomes the floor of the room. That just speaks to the aesthetic of the movie, though. Like, yeah. Like, that's the way this factory works, and that's the way things are in this movie. Like, right. You don't question the fact that the the factory has the technology to make the actual space move. You just move like this, yeah. That's the way it is here. And then after it happens, Patrick sticks his head in and is like, oh, I'm sorry, we needed a little more space. It's like, well, you didn't warn any of these people before you nearly crushed them inside this room. <laughs> 3PO. Right? 
<laughs> What's the name of this, the the eyeball thing that's in the trash compactor? Fuck, man. I can't remember that's some anymore. Deep cut shit. Yeah, I used to know. Whatever. <laughs> uh. At this point, Robin Williams, Leslie, and his sister uh, Alsatia, they decide. All right, look, we got to figure out what the fuck Leland is doing. Like, what is all this secret shit he's up to? Like, we got to investigate. He won't give them any answers, no. so they got to sneak in. Yeah, he eventually tells Leslie that I'll tell you what's going on if you give me two weeks. But the group of them realize that, like, if they give him another two weeks and he's up to something crazy, it's just going to be way worse. Yeah. And they've got to do something about it now. So they they do a little bit of trickery to get themselves in the restricted area of the factory, right? <laughs> yes. Well, I guess one thing before all this unfolds is they realize, too, that he's been hiring children. So that's very sus, right? Yeah. I mean, that's part of the – like, Leslie notices through a – like a third story window that there are kids being unloaded from a bus, a school bus, a school bus and being routed into the factory. And he comments that it's not the first bus load of them you've seen that in fact, like all week long kids have been getting bussed in, you know, at first it kind of makes sense because it's not totally unusual that a toy company, it's kind of like how you got those people that hang out in malls trying to give you free passes to a movie because ultimately what they want is for people to give them feedback they'll use for their marketing. Mm -hmm. So it's not totally unusual, right, that they'd have a bunch of kids show up at a toy factory and test out a new toy, but it's too many kids. It's like dozens of them over a period of like three weeks. It's real strange, yeah. And when he goes to ask uh, uh, Leland about it, Leland's like, no, we didn't have any kids in here. (laughs) Yeah, he's like, no, it's because, you know, they looked small. They looked small because you were looking down on them. So stupid, dude. (laughs) Anyway... Uh, to get into the restricted area, they need to devise a way to get past their security check. Steve, could you tell me a little bit about what goes on here? <laughs> so Alsatia and Leslie know that there's a corridor they have to get through in order to get to the door to where the testing is happening. But that corridor is heavily observed by security camera and they can't just walk through it without being noticed. So, well, Leslie also finds a way to steal... Leland's badge. And now I'm forgetting the scene where it happened. He finds a way to steal Leslie's badge. Toodles gives it to him. Or that's right. Toodles gets it. Oh, yeah. Toodles steals a badge. And then eventually um, Toodles also goes to the security room and he makes up a lie about having lost his glasses instead of his marbles. (laughs) And um, he asks the security guards to check their drawers to see if they found the glasses anywhere. And while they're doing that, he sticks this little placard on under one of the security monitors to make it say MTV. And it covers up the placard that normally says you're looking at this corridor, whatever corridor this is. Right. The idea is to make it seem like on their security system, some of which have cable TV apparently, that one of the screens isn't actually a security camera. It's patched into MTV. And it's like, well, I don't, it's really weird that it's it's one of those goofy movie things, right? Like you've got to accept it because it's just part of the way that world is going to work. But like, why would they think that they had MTV getting pumped to their security system? And even more, these guys have obviously worked there at least for several weeks at this point. You've been staring at this console every day. You know which one is which. Yeah, you don't you don't suddenly notice that one of them is now MTV. That's not strange to you. Anyway, so he does that. Uh, Alsatia and Leslie get this fake backdrop that's the exact width of the corridor and they wheel it into the corridor in such a manner that when the security camera is looking at it, 
you can't see the corridor anymore. You can only see the backdrop that they've pushed in, which is another goofy one. Like the guards should have seen them pulling that backdrop into the corridor. But anyway, and once they've got it in there, they then stage a music video um, so that the guards think they're watching MTV. And this is designed to help distract them up to the point that Leslie can break away and make his way to where all all of Leland's testing is happening. Right. And the song they sing was an original song for this movie. They actually shot a full-length music video to go along with it. It was co-written by Thomas Dolby, who if you don't know him, you may know a famous song from the 80s called She Blinded Me With Science. That's Thomas Dolby. He co-wrote the song and also performed some background vocals for it. So that song was on the soundtrack, and MTV actually did run a music video of it. I was going to say that I do have a very distinct memory, because I watched a lot of MTV in the (laughs) 90s, of seeing that come on sometimes, that music video. Yeah, absolutely. You can't find it now. Yeah. I swear it's there's not, a I can't of, find it on YouTube. Really? They just have a scene, the scene from the movie. That's true. It's intercut just, with the guards. It's really interesting, and I know as but, a matter of fact it's not as it's not given as a bonus on any of the home video. I don't think. The double check. I have to double check my laser disc. Maybe it is on the laser disc. But I don't know. I hope it's somewhere, man, because I I thought I was crazy watching this. I was like, no, I remember seeing this music video yeah. on TV. Anyway, that whole music video scene is kind of fun. It's like one of the things I liked a lot as a kid. Yeah, and that's another moment where they, not just inspired by, but they expressly rip off a Magritte painting. And now I'm blanking on the name of the painting, but one of his paintings is literally just like the same image of a man in a bowler hat, but like printed all over a sky. And you can't really tell whether they're supposed to be falling from the sky or ascending from the ground. Hmm. And... uh some of the background art for their music video is is that painting, which is very interesting. Yeah. It's a fun song. It is a fun song. But Leslie sneaks away and manages to find where they're what they're doing, what they're doing, and he discovers that Leland's got all these children sitting at stations. There's one part of the film where they sort of predict VR headsets, which they turned out to be exactly right about. Yes. Um, like, I, it, in 92, everyone was like, haha, it'll be, you know, millennia before we have anything like that. And fast forward to now, like, you can buy one that goes with your fucking PlayStation. Plus, if you go to Vegas, every fucking corner has, like, a VR headset yes. ride thing. Right. Um, but then the, these kids are all sitting at these stations that look a lot like a PC setup with one really large curved ultra-wide monitor. Yeah, dude, those curved fucking screens, right? And so what these kids are sitting in front of is not that. It's not absolutely real, but it's not all that far off from what we've got now. And uh, they're playing tank games and missile games. And one of the tank games is actually a real video game that came out a few months after the movie. But uh, yeah, and he realizes what's going on. He starts talking to one of the kids and, you know, what are you doing? And the kid tells him he's he's bombing factories. And then he gets a thousand points apiece for killing people. Military base. What type of things is the military base? People, army tanks, and helicopters. Oh. How many points do you get for blowing up people? Thousand. And Leslie's like, that's totally like scary to him for right. some reason, right? Like, <laughs> Yeah, right? <laughs> yeah, he finds it horrifying. Um, when he first gets in, when he first gets in there through the door and he sees what's going on, he makes a comment about it being like F.A.O. Schwarzkopf. My God. F.A.O. Schwarzkopf. 
Which I think that joke might miss a lot of people, but FAO Schwartz is the name of a really famous chain of super high-end toy stores. Their flagship is in New York City. And then General Norman Schwarzkopf was the lead general during the American invasion of Iraq back in the <laughs> early 90s. So that's that's supposed to be the joke. FAO Schwarzkopf was like a general's toy store. That's a deep cut. It is a deep cut. If you don't know those two <laughs> things, the joke will be – I don't even get what the joke is, but yeah. They got some pretty impressive video games, though. They do. Like, I really thought those looked cool as a kid, especially like the hologram miniguns and shit on the side. So dope. Yeah, it really is, was pretty damn cool. And um, when he gets into that room, I, you probably caught it. I caught it. And then I looked it up online and verified it. T2 sound effect. When he swipes his card to get into the room. Oh, yeah. It, the entry sound is the non-entry sound from the factory in T2. Right. When Miles Dyson is like, this should work, and he swipes his card. They're trying to get into the manufacturing part of Cyberdyne. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. My card should access this thing. Absolutely. Same exact sound effect. I thought I was... I, I was so proud of myself for that. <laughs> right? Well, it's kind of like the Wilhelm scream. You know, you hear it everywhere. <laughs> uh, he also finds... What is... He finds some aquatic creature of some kind. Yeah, so speaking of the thing inside the trash compactor in episode four, he's he eventually tries to get away. Like, he realizes he's going to be caught, so he tries to get away, but he ends up falling into a water pit where there's this, like, armed monster swimming around in the water. And you don't really know exactly what it is or what it's supposed to do, but Patrick finds Leslie having fallen into the pit and keeps yelling at him not to move, not to move. And he's trying to tell one of the other guys to shut the thing off before something happens to Leslie. But Leland, who seems not to care at all that this is his nephew, is just like, no, leave it running. I want to see what happens. <laughs> and they basically try to murder Leslie. Yeah. And then this is this is another one, one of those moments where I've got a little criticism. It's a very movie moment where, like, we can't figure out how he's supposed to escape from this. So we're just going to have him escape from it in an off-scene moment, and we won't explain how it happened. Yeah. So, like, he goes under the water, and then the few minutes later, he's just not in it anymore. <laughs> yeah, it is, like, a hard cut to, like, he's out of there. Right? It's kind of one of the – they do a lot of self-aware moments like that in Family Guy, where you can tell that the writers have put the family in a moment they don't know how to get them out of, and – uh the next scene will be them all sitting at the couch and Peter will say something. Well, that, you know, that was close. It's a good thing we figured out that that thing at the last moment to get out of that situation. And then they'll just leave it. You yeah. know, they'll never tell you what it was. <laughs> the sea swine is what it's called. The right? sea swine. Yeah, that's right. And eventually Les, uh, Leland ends up in the same pit toward the end of the movie. Right. Or in the same predicament, at least. Yeah, in the same predicament. In fact... In order to try to deactivate it, when he gets stuck in there, he tries saying the words Klaatu, Barada, Nikto. What is this? The day the Earth stood still? Exactly. It's from the day the Earth stood still. They're also the same words that Ash was supposed to say to get the Necronomicon to work in um, uh, Evil Dead. Or not even. It's Evil in Dead Army of Darkness. Oh, Army of Darkness. Okay. Yeah. I got some vibes of one Ace Ventura. Because, you know, the the creature in, like, the tank, the water tank, so the shark in Ace Ventura. But also, it, I kind of, like, have that part of the movie mixed up in my head with the fly, too. There's, like, a dog creature that has, like, the fly 
transformation shit going on in the fly too and it's like in a pit that's like similar to this where they look at it from above i remember the pit part of the second fly i don't remember that scene i'm thinking of the 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 dog alien from the beginning of the thing no different thing yeah yeah like i i definitely remember the pit i remember eric stoltz being in the pit but yeah. i'm not, i'm not remembering the exact scene you're talking about but whatever yeah yeah we'll get to the fly too someday maybe yeah eventually what a way to shit on a really good movie <laughs> <laughs> anyway so things start going bad for leland after this point because he tries to sell his idea to some other military officials which he just calls the washington boys yeah he has a meeting with him and it doesn't go well no no well it's funny because it doesn't really go that badly either he introduces him to the whole thing and they sort of seem into it and they tell him basically we've got it we've just got to go back to our superiors and see if we can make this work and Leland just takes that as an absolute no and flips his fucking shit. And tries to, like, strangle one of them. Yeah, he tries to strangle one of them. And it's like, what are you doing? He ruins it for himself. And then, for some reason, the character goes back to his office expecting that he might get a phone call. And when he never gets the phone call from them, that's when he's like, well, fuck this. We're just going to gonna go, go nuts. Yeah. Uh, he has, like, a breakdown concerning a, a house fly, a fly in Yeah, he room. tries shooting a house fly with a, uh, with a gun. <laughs> Which is, uh, I think, I think it's a reference to Sun Tzu, the art of war. Where it's like never try to kill a fly with a cannon or something like that. Okay. Yeah, but yeah, exactly. He he just has a total breakdown and then decides he's gonna gonna freak the fuck out about this whole thing. It's like if you would not strangle that guy, you might have had a chance at actually selling this. But there's also like while he's having that meeting with the Washington boys, he's got Jamie Foxx's character and one of the other guards like surveilling the meeting. But they're they're not surveilling it with regular cameras. They're surveilling it with these like see-through X-ray body cams, and the whole thing looks like that part in the original Total Recall where they've got to walk <laughs> through the panel for the gun check. Yeah, and it's, it's just the, like the skeletal. Yeah, and it's like a bunch of green skeletons, <laughs> and like it just it looks like something from an early '90s computer game. Like in a good way, I kind of liked it, but it's. It's really funny to watch and the skeletons have this sort of stiff movement to them. And like when they cut back and forth between them, especially during the part where Leland is strangling the dude, you can kind of tell looking the the way they could make the skeletons move in the CG was very limited. So they had to make sure that they postured the actors in such a way that it would match what the skeletons were doing. You know, he's because there's a couple of moments where he's, he's got this kind of awkward, very stiff, very specific posture. And it's like they must have done that to make it line up with the way the, the skeleton looks. Yeah. Right. They also surveil Leslie with a little like spy robot with a trench coat. Oh, yeah. <laughs> he's like... While he's banging his girlfriend, yeah, yeah, that's that was another weird one, and it gets <laughs> flung out the window by a by a, a bra strap. Very strange stuff. Yeah, it is very strange stuff. Absolutely, <laughs> they're really getting off on that shit, man. Right? Yeah, those two guys were way into it. Like, <laughs> goddamn, man, I don't know. But uh, the, as it's starting to turn, Patrick eventually betrays Leland, his dad. Because he finds out about his mom, which you touched on yeah. earlier, right? Yeah, he finds out what really happened to his mother and decides he's been getting lied to his whole life. I mean, I still contend it was shitty to be lied to in that way. But generally speaking, Leland obviously did a mostly pretty decent job raising this guy. I mean, he kind of turned him into a hardcore soldier, but not in an indecent way. He's not violent. He doesn't run around like hurting people. So whatever. Right. And Patrick is 
seems like a good guy in general. Right. I mean, he's kind of shitty to Leslie for the most part, but he's very nice to Alsatia, which I like. Yeah, and he, you know, he, he does kind of redeem, redeem himself for having been weird with, with uh, Gwen. And, uh, yeah, you know, overall, like, I, I think that character might have overreacted a little bit. On the other hand, like, what Leland had planned was crazy anyway, so you got to do something about it. Right, and they decide they're going to stop him. They're the, our group of heroes, which is uh, Robin Williams... Uh, Alsatia, Joan Cusack, yes. L.O. Cooljoy has now joined them, Patrick. Also, uh, Toodles is there. Toodles. Representing the Lost Boys. <laughs> <laughs> Not the vampires, the Peter Pan kids. <laughs> <laughs> so they're going to break into the factory, and I guess their plan is to just shut down whatever the fuck Leland's doing, right? Yeah, they don't really seem to have much of a plan other than that. Like, this is the part where they agree that they can't afford to give Leland another two weeks to do whatever he's doing because it'll be too far gone by then. And so, yeah, they they kind of just go in there without a plan, really, because they need to just get in and do something. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> right? They're going to hit the off switch, man. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> they, they sort of just show up. It's, it's kind of like, you know, we'll figure out what we're going to do when we're there. But yeah, and then it turns into like a large-scale toy war. It does turn into a large-scale toy war. So after they kind of like are sneaking around, they get confronted by little war toys that we haven't seen up until this point, like actual functioning tiny tanks and shit like that. Right, and I mean, this is where like, obviously they wanted to keep it within the tone and the aesthetic for this film. But like, if you look at what, what Leland's people have come up with... Like, they really are just war toys. They don't look at all like anything that could survive being sent into an actual battle. They're like plastic toys with guns on them and stuff, you know? Some of them are just repurposed old 50s toys. Yeah, and he's got these big ones that are supposed to look like mechanical soldiers, I guess, but they're these big square blocky things that can barely move. It's like, what are you going to do with these? You can knock one of these over. Like, Probably a couple of my favorites are the ones that we only see once, like the baby Oh, there was like yeah. a little porcelain, like, but movable. Maybe, I guess it's not porcelain, but the mom pushing the baby and the baby has a gun. Yeah, that one was pretty funny. And the ball right. that can bounce and then right. it unfolds. And there's, there's, it's weird, he doesn't wear it very long, but toward the end, there's a, a few moments where Leland has given up his normal military spec camouflage. And instead, he's wearing camo that's all pastel colors. Yeah, it's like Lego camo. Yeah, so he's taken on this very toy, toy camo look. And it's like, yeah, it's it's kind of funny that like he's losing his shit. Like clearly, he's kind of lost his own mind. I think the underlying message here is like living in in the confines of this toy factory makes everyone a little insane. Is it? <laughs> you know, like I mean, there's some kind of meaning with this movie. Yeah, like it. it there's a theme that I don't fully pick up on it's something about the military industrial complex yeah i mean ultimately it's a very anti-industrial military complex anti-war that like we can settle our differences without needing it to be violent like it's a very pacifist film absolutely but we talked about like the the toy war that was (laughs) definitively my favorite part as a kid very late in the movie yeah but I thought that was cool because you have all the military toys, the bad ones, right. kind of quote unquote fighting against the good toys, like because they they have all their old like retired toys in the toy factory. Yeah, or the warehouse. I mean, they the find warehouse the warehouse. Part. Yeah, I thought as a kid the toys became sentient, <laughs> and they just started fighting them. 
but they don't, right? Like, no, I they guess don't. They just like wind them all up and they just like send them out. Yeah, I mean that's the other thing is it's kind of like uh, God. There's a, there's a joke in one episode of Futurama where Zap Brannigan is bragging that the, the whole reason he won some huge previous war is that he just kept sending out wave after wave of soldiers to die until the other side basically got sick of doing it. And, and like, it's kind of like that. We're like, they're just like, you know, we're going to send in all these other toys. And ultimately the only good they're really going to be able to do is to distract the military toys for a little while while they kill the regular toys. Right. That's really the most you're going to get out of this. There are some strange moments in this battle, like where like the toys comfort each other. Like it's yeah. like the Ewoks when they find a dead Ewok and they get sad. Like that happens with like the toys right. at some point. Except the Ewoks say what you want about them. We're at least supposed to be sentient, and these things are toys. Right. So, <laughs> and maybe that's part of the reason I thought they like achieved sentience as a kid. <laughs> right. It's true. You look at that. You like they know what's going on. Right. Plus they keep running. Like yeah. They run longer than they should. You wind up a toy, you think it runs for, what, 20 seconds? Yeah. You know, there's that, the, the one that just manages to keep going and going until at the end it's outside the factory. Yeah. I like... <laughs> Such oh. weird old toys. Like, it, it's like that hard plastic. I, I want to say porcelain, but it's not quite yeah. that, you know? It's like... And a lot of them were still made out of metal. Like, metal toys got real rare, after a while, like even by the mid late eighties when I was a kid, there weren't many anymore. And I, it's one thing I remember like my mom and her brother sort of lamenting, you know, that like the little, the kids toys aren't made. My dad too. Kids toys aren't like that anymore. Kids, kids toys in the fifties were a lot heftier in some ways. I still say, man, toys from the nineties, top tier toys. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I thought the stuff in the fifties was really neat, but the eighties and nineties stuff with the action figures, at least, you know, I was way into uh, Claremont era X-Men figures were I think my favorite of all I still buy those yeah, yeah me too <laughs> yeah I, I had some serious G.I. Joes when I was a kid oh absolutely you know I had a little lion from Thundercats if you pressed a button on his back he'd raise his hand and he would do the sword bit and his light would his belt would light up it was super cool <laughs> yeah dope yeah I loved it uh, that one that one that one survived for several years until my brother took it in the pool with him <laughs> <laughs> resentment much Mm-hmm. <laughs> so the battle kind of goes on. Leslie Robin Williams gets out of there. He he makes his way eventually to like kind of where Leland is. He's yeah. up in this office. He uses the Santa plane, right? And, and I guess that's why we see the Santa plane earlier in the movie. Yeah, I think that was one of the. Well, I mean, I'm sure that they liked the aesthetic of doing things that way anyway, and the kind of the idea that Santa would deliver his gifts by plane. But yeah, at the same time. I feel like that was one of those moments where they also needed to set it up as being there so that it would be there at the end of the movie. Yeah. Yeah. He flies his plane into the office. They have kind of like a airborne scuffle where they're both like hanging onto the plane, which is barely attached to its fucking wires. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I kind of always wished they did a little bit more with that part because they had that amazing... I mean, it's massive. It's a whole soundstage. They had that massive scale model of, of part of Manhattan and part of Central Park in this huge soundstage. I thought it would have been really neat for the... I mean, it wouldn't have needed to be much, two minutes worth. Just like of of Leslie in the plane, maybe like like flying over the city model and like shooting some of the toys or something. You know, just a neat sequence to take advantage of the space. They didn't... It, I mean, I thought they could have, but whatever. Right, because it, it doesn't go like... 
I mean, they, t- they take out the computer yeah. at some point. Like, one of the robots, I think, accidentally shoots it. And their sets for this were fucking huge. I didn't mention this earlier, but the rumor I've always heard is that at one point they had almost every stage or potentially every single stage at Fox's back lot on Pico built out just for this movie. Well, there's a special teaser trailer. There's some footage that's not in the movie yeah. that they shot just to make a teaser. And one of the things that Robin Williams says is that I'm here on the biggest soundstage in the country or something like that. I'm Robin Williams, here on the world's largest soundstage at 20th Century Fox. That's right. This entire wheat field is in one building. I'm here tonight to talk to you about an incredible movie, Toys. Yeah. So, I mean, they they went all out for this. Yeah, they did. And I mean, from what I, my understanding was, is like every single one of those stages was full with the set for this film, which is really rare, especially with something like this, where there's not a big guarantee of success for the studio, even if it's only for a few weeks at a time, for the studio to allow every stage on their lot to be filled with sets for one film is very uncommon. Hmm. Uh, well, the way it wraps up is that, that uh, the sea swine... Shows oh, yeah. up and takes out Leland. Yeah. Doesn't kill him though, right? But I think he gets like blasted. Yeah, I mean, I don't think death is really a, a significant part of the story, but about as close as he could get to being killed without actually being killed. Right. His creation has turned on him in a very Frankenstein kind of way, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> what have I done? But yeah, he gets uh, he gets taken out, and I guess the way it plays out is like he's just defeated and therefore he's done running the company and he's just going to go hang out with his dad in that military tent inside the mansion yeah i think you know the idea is just like leslie has finally claimed the reins now he's got the girl and he's fought off his uncle and he's kind of ready to really be in charge and you know he the, the father did tell leland early on that like eventually i do want leslie to be able to take over from you so i think it's kind of assumed that this is just when it's going to happen and the movie ends where it begins with another Christmas play. Yeah, yeah, it ends with them sort of repeating that that Christmas play moment. So full circle. One of the lyrics in the song is something like, if I cannot bring you comfort, then at least I can bring you hope. And I think that that's, that's where they wanted to end it, is like, we've, we've faced this challenge and we've gotten through things and I, I may not be able to make you feel better about what happened, but at the very least I can give you hope that like from here, things are going to be better again. Well, Steve, do you have any final thoughts about the movie before we go into ratings? Anything we missed? Uh, one thing I thought was worth mentioning, well, two sort of things. Like, there was one touch where they go to the father's funeral early in the film, and they realize that there's this mechanical, like, computerized laughter coming from inside his casket. And when they open it to find out what it's coming from, it turns out it's a toy called the Barrel of Laughs. So that was pretty funny. And, you know, it's very obvious that, like, the father character intended for it to go off during the service. That wasn't just him being silly, that, like, he wanted it to happen. And I, I think the whole idea is to like to lighten it and to say that this is this is a sad moment. It's the end of someone's life, but also don't let the sadness be what defines it. Like he was also a funny man and a silly man and he enjoyed life and he wants you to enjoy it too. So even even here in the moment of his funeral, like we should have some enjoyment and some laughter. 
But what's even better than that is like the tombstone they erect for him is this like five or six foot tall baby elephant on its hind legs with its trunk up. I love that. Right, me too. And it, it spit, it spurts bubbles. And especially like we were talking about that field, those kind of neon green grass and the deep blue sky, and it's sitting there on a hill by itself in the middle of nowhere, and it's got the bubbles coming out. It's so surreal. It really is kind of beautiful. I love it myself. It's one of my favorite touches in the whole movie that that's what his his headstone would look like. And from what I've heard, I don't know if it's still there, but that headstone was at one point at a, a it was at a Planet Hollywood, I think like in Florida or New York or somewhere like that. The actual piece that they made for the movie. I would love to see that. Me too. I'd love to have it in my living room. <laughs> like I, I'd love to, I'd love to rebuild the whole toy factory. Well, that's slightly less realistic. <laughs> it is. It is. But you know. One thing I wanted to touch on, just a small moment in the movie, before we find out Alsace is a robot, because she gets her head blown the fuck off at the end of the movie. We didn't mention that, but hey, it happens. She eats what she calls mayonnaise sandwiches. It's just two pieces of bread with mayonnaise, and she puts a bunch of pills in there, which are vitamins, but I like to think in my head, it's not. It's just a bunch of fucking pills. Right. I love that joke, but... To your point, it also always kind of confused me. In fact, I'm more confused about that joke as an adult than I was as a kid because it's like, at first I thought the joke was supposed to be that Alsatia's kind of nuts and the family knows that she needs to be medicated, but she won't eat eat it if she knows it's medication or maybe she just isn't capable of understanding what medication is. So maybe she's just calling them vitamins because the family has told her that they're vitamins. You know, they're vitamins, but they're actually like psychoactive drugs. But I'm not sure that that's the case anymore because... You know, it occurs to me now and for a few viewings at this point that, like, if she's a machine, A, why was she eating anything at all? And B, why would you program a machine to think that it needed vitamins? And C, how does her body digest this food after she's eaten it? And D, why would she have any preference regarding what she ate? Like, at one point she asks the cafeteria chef to make her an, an applesauce sandwich. Like, why would a robot even come up with that? It shouldn't need to eat anything at all. I just, it doesn't really make any sense, but okay. I'm not totally sure myself. Yeah. <laughs> I've got to be honest with you there. Right? They, they would have just been better if, you know, they could have had a scene where instead of eating, she was just playing at the dinner table, you know? One thing that I just want to say before I forget, and I think I've talked about this at some other point on the podcast with you, but the way the factory looks in some regards reminds me of the Seattle Public Library. Oh yeah, I can see that. I lived in Seattle in 2004, yeah. and there, there was a newly erected public library, and it was very, uh, I don't know how else to say, artistic? Right. They have like a, this place is weird. Like it's, a, it's not a normal building. Right. It's, it's intended to be like a very weird structure. Um, at a glance, it looks like it's like top heavy and it looks like the building's gonna fall down from a certain angle, but that's only part of it. Like inside, there's like one floor that f- it's like, it feels like half a floor. It has a very low ceiling. Right. Everything is bright red. So when you leave that floor, like your eyes are fucked up, like because everything's red. But also like when you take the escalators up, parts of the wall, like it looks like they're broken. Right. And then there's like screens. 
And there's like there's like moving mouths and like blinking eyes and like just weird shit. I like that. And you get little glimpses of stuff like that in this movie. So I, I'd like to think that some of that is like related yeah, on an artistic level. I, I'm fairly sure that some of the outdoor stuff in this film was shot in Washington State. I wouldn't be surprised if somebody saw it. Well, this is years before that was built. I, I but think, yeah, I think that was built after. So I'd yeah. like to think they got inspiration from this. Right, maybe. But uh, I don't even know if that library is still structured that way. So what I'm saying might be outdated. I haven't been there in a long time. Right. It's kind of cool when they do stuff like that, though. Like the the music hall that Frank Lloyd Wright designed downtown Los Angeles. It's like it, the building doesn't really. It's beautiful, but it doesn't really make any sense. Or when you're looking at it, it it, it it looks like it's folding over itself. It's kind of these nonsensical shapes. It's very interesting. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think it's time for ratings, Steve. Yeah. On any rating scale you want, what are you going to give toys? I'm going to give toys. Eight out of ten mysterious water pit creatures. I, sea swines. Sea swines. There you go. Eight out of ten sea swines. I'm I'm very tempted to really just give it a ten, but I, it, it's not quite perfect. It's but anyway, it's a strange movie. There are parts of it that are definitely worth debating over. Some of it doesn't really make sense. Some of the motivations are questionable. Didn't do very well in theaters. I, I think it's one of those movies that a lot of people don't get. It's definitely time-stamped from the early 90s, but the the costuming, the backgrounds, and the set were all designed by people who had backgrounds in art and theater. It was all heavily inspired by the work of actual artists, one of whom was Magritte. It's very surrealistic. It's one of the most beautifully surrealistic films I've ever seen. Uh, some of the touches, like the the pop-up book house at the beginning, are really rather incredible, even by today's standards. It, it's just such a mood piece. It's so interesting and so fun to be lost in and so artistic and interesting to look at and think about and analyze that, like, for the most part, for me, it really doesn't matter that the narrative's a little thin or that it's not entirely perfect. I don't think that was the point of this movie anyway. It's like watching a piece of art that has some narrative to go along with it, and I I really enjoy that. Um, So definitely a good one for me. Awesome. Don't be mad at me, Steve, but I'm going to give this a much lower rating. I'm going to give this a 4 out of 10 duplication investigations. (laughs) The problem I have with this movie for me is that it's not fun to watch. All right, so I'm going to give that a little bit more info here. So... As a kid, I didn't get this movie. I told you that earlier. I haven't watched this movie as an adult. It's one of those few movies that I never revisited, which is rare for me. I love to revisit movies I liked as a kid, or at least watched as a kid. I still didn't get it. So (laughs) that was the problem for me. This movie is beautiful to look at. It is uh, highly imaginative. It has some of the best uh, set designs and props of any movie that we've done on this podcast, like I said earlier. Yeah. But I don't necessarily enjoy the pacing of it, and I don't enjoy the story of it that much. I think it has some good ideas in there, but it's it's executed a little flat to me. That being said, Robin Williams is great. He's great in pretty much everything, except for Popeye. (laughs) And even that... Well, finish your review. (laughs) But um, it's not enough of Williams for me. He's got like six good gags in the movie where he's like being funny or so and then maybe like six that are less funny 
And that's about it. It's not like as in your face Robin Williams as a movie like Mrs. Doubtfire or Hook is. It's it's okay. I mean... I think that's part of the reason I like it, to be honest. Really? Yeah, because I I like him, but I also find that a lot of the time, two hours of it is too much for me. Like, I kind of like the fact that they wrote wrote them in, so it's like, we're going to give you your taste of Robin Williams, but you're just not going to get quite as much of it. Mm. For me, it was okay. Oh, oh, like, even with Popeye, it's funny, I think, I mean, we'll get there when we get there, but I think my review of Popeye is going to be a little bit closer to where you are with this film in the sense that, like, that movie's actually staged exceptionally well. The backgrounds and the sets were fantastic. It, it looks great. They did a tremendous job with the way that movie looks, the aesthetic of the costuming. Even the makeup was very good. It just, it's so weird. And Williams plays such a strangely indulgent version of Popeye. I think it's... <laughs> strangely indulgent. Right? It, just, it, it falls like... I, it's one of those movies where, like, this is one of those films where I think the substance is more in the aesthetic than it is in the story. But there's enough of a story and enough acting in it for me that I don't mind. Where like as with Popeye, that movie's all look. It's all like right. they did a great job of translating it from looking like a comic book into a comic book film. But like it's and that not, movie is long. And, yeah. And I can ask almost anyone this and they won't answer. Let's try it. What is Popeye about? What is it about? Yeah. What's what's the plot? I haven't actually watched it in probably ten years. I don't really remember anymore. Other than that, it's no one the, knows, right? <laughs> it's got the typical like Popeyes trying to get olive oil back from Brutus, but that's, right. But it's like two and a half hours. But like, right. what is the plot? Like, I don't even remember anymore. <laughs> uh, it's a musical, right? I think there's some musical bits in it, but overall, I wouldn't say it's a musical. I remember they used one of the songs from that movie in Punch Drunk Love. Oh my god! Yeah. <laughs> that's another one I've had one friend of mine I honestly thought was never going to speak to me again he was so upset with me for saying this you don't like it yeah I don't think it's really that great a movie I'm not saying it's bad I I don't think it's a bad film it just I don't I I don't get it I don't really get the praise level for it for me it was just like eh you know it's not bad it's not great it's nothing special I find it it feels very awkward to me that movie well if you watch it and then you watch Hubie Halloween you, right after, you might get like a an appreciation for it. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, if you watch it back to back with his really terrible stuff, then like, well, yeah, by comparison, this is incredible. <laughs> it's a fucking you masterpiece. Know? But like, well, the, the, I know you liked it too. Uh, Uncut Gems for me was like the high point of him doing serious stuff. Yeah. His other serious films just have not done it for me. I feel the same way about some of Jim Carrey's serious stuff, like The Majestic. I got into a huge, huge argument with somebody once at a party. I didn't intend for it to turn out so bad, but, like, they were really offended. I was like, that movie's really not very good. It's not. And, and you know, and that and she flipped the fuck out about it. She acted like it was the, like, the greatest film that had ever been produced and that Jim Carrey's just this massive genius that no one properly appreciates. And it's, I'm, I'm sorry, no. I actually like him The guy him that now. talks out of his asshole. Is right. <laughs> And I actually like him, especially the last 10 years, as a person, as a human being. I actually quite like him. But, as a human being. Right? But Mark? The, the, right? But that movie is not good. Like, it isn't. Ugh. <laughs> anyway. Toys. That was toys. That was toys. It's better than you're saying it was. <laughs> <laughs> Here's the thing. If you haven't seen Toys, I think you should watch Toys. Me because too. it's like an interesting... It's almost like an independent film, but it's not an independent film. It's a big budget, big studio movie, but it has that like weird indie vibe. And I think there are some definite things to appreciate that people like you or Steve might latch onto that I didn't. 
So I think it's worth watching. Smart people. You mean smart people. Yeah, smart people. <laughs> I'm the, joking. The cinephiles that listen to Big Dumb Movie. Right. Uh, Corey is very intelligent. <laughs> well, thank you guys for listening. If you want to talk to us, you can email us at bigdumbmovie at gmail.com. But here's my big request to our fans. Write an Apple Podcast review. That's what helps us the most. On Apple Podcasts, if you have an iPhone and that's what you use, even if that's not what you use, write us a positive review, written review, and leave us five stars. That helps us immensely. That's what we need, people. Get your friends and family to do it. Get your enemies. Make friends with them. Become friends with them. Get their phone. Write us a positive review. And then stop being friends with them. The word you're struggling for is frenemies. Frenemies. (laughs) (laughs) Go to your neighbor's house, ask if they have an iPhone. If they do, say, let me borrow it real quick. Write us a review. That way you've done it on your phone and their phone. It's <laughs> all I ask. Not that much, right, Steve? No, no, absolutely you should. Very reasonable request here. <laughs> absolutely. Uh, our Instagram is Big Dumb Movie Podcast, by the way. Thank you guys for listening. We love you. Good night. I don't know about love. <laughs>
a pretty damn decent action movie. John Lithgow's in it. He's really a good actor. He is. Um, most of that movie is not bad. Even Sly is not at his worst in it, but he really is kind of the weakest link. I, I think if they had taken that movie slightly more seriously and cast someone else in the lead, it actually would have been even better. But by mid-90s action movie standards, not not bad. I, I really do think we should do it. This movie that I've been wanting to see was Stallone. Where he seemed pretty good. I watched one scene. Copland. Oh, yeah. I always forget about that one. It's not awful. It it, it, it aspires to more than it ends up being capable oh, of delivering. But I could see that just from the little bit I saw. <laughs> right. But it's not terrible. You know, it's certainly not as bad as uh, Stallone's finest work in Cobra. Don't haven't seen that. <laughs> oh, it's pretty awful. I saw Stop or My Mom Will Shoot when I was a kid. <laughs> yes, I've seen that one as well. <laughs> um, Stallone has some pretty shitty movies. Judge Dredd is like, I don't know, I that's not the business to me, dude. <laughs> there are there are things about the design of that movie I genuinely really like, but the rest of it screws it up. The, the part of it that drives me the most nuts is that the, the newer Dredd with Carl Urban is a way better movie. And I and I don't dislike the costuming in it. I think they did a nice job. But technically, the one high point to Stallone's was that the costumes the judges wear in the Stallone version look almost exactly like what they wear in the comics. It, okay. It's pretty interesting that they nailed that one part of it. I I mean, the new Dread is obviously really good. But yeah. I think it got sandwiched in between 80s remakes that, like, yeah. unfairly... The RoboCop remake came out close to that time, and the Total Recall remake came out close to that time. That's right. So when people see this new Dread coming out, they're like, oh, another one of these really shitty remakes? Fuck yeah. this movie. And no one gave it a chance. And it got made on a fair, comparatively really small budget. I don't think it, it showed in all that many screens nationally, and they had problems even getting it produced, and the the producer is this weird like 20 something indian kid i have no idea there were a lot of rumors he was a scam artist i have nobody really had any idea at least early on where the fuck he was even getting all this money and yeah really some like tommy Wiseau character guy yeah it's sort of like that like less weird uh, like one of those people you, <laughs> weird but less weird yeah weird but less when one of those one of those dudes that's like how do you put this like You've never caught him doing anything, but you can absolutely tell that behind the scenes he's doing something. Like everyone I've lived with at a sober living house that I used to stay. <laughs> like behind the scenes, something's going on. Dude, I have to admit, I don't like. I've never done it myself, so I can't speak firsthand. I don't know what your experience was like, but a friend of mine, close friend of mine, a few of them really, but this guy, one in particular, is the stories about. He he lived in a sober living for about a year when he was getting clean, and. um I remember him at one point. He was he was allowed to come out like for lunch, and he's like, "I'm suspicious of everybody here. These people are all weird." He's like, "These people are all weird junkies," and I'm like, "Like you're one of these people. How can you talk that way about them?" He's like, "No, you don't get it. No, we're allowed to say that. Right. About them. Don't you understand, Steve? Right? That's our word. That's- right? I'm like, all right, fine." <laughs> uh. Uh.